Our text is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. The text says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. You may be seated. Yeah, so this is where we're at today, um, and I'm so excited um, because we're talking about something that we all struggle with all the time, which is trials. And uh, so anytime I, I can be encouraged by the Word of God in my trials is always a good thing. Uh, so why don't we pray and uh, we'll get right into the Word today. Let's pray together one more time. Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you so much, Lord, for just your utter faithfulness to us. Thank you, God, that even in this text, we can see something of your magnificent faithfulness in our lives. Thank you, God, that Though we are often confronted with these realities that we find in this passage of being persecuted and struck down and, and, and being oftentimes filled with affliction, we thank you that you are still there to strengthen us, to preserve us, and to protect us so that we do not end in despair. And Lord, we know that it's only by your merciful hand that we are kept from being overcome and overrun by our life's trials. And so, Father, today we look to you. Please fill us, fill our hearts, Lord, with wisdom and understanding. Fill our hearts, Lord, with, with the knowledge of your will, with the knowledge of your word, so that we might be able to rightly discern through life's trials, Lord. We thank you. We ask your blessing on this time. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, I wanted to uh, tackle this whole passage here, but I quickly realized there's just too much here for me to deal with, and so I'm going to split this up into two uh, messages, and I really want you to encourage uh, those that you know, everyone who missed today, and we have a lot of absent people today, I realize that, a lot of people out of town, a lot of people that are sick, uh, but just to really encourage them to listen to this message because this message is a message, I believe, that if we take heed to the principles that we have in the Word of God here, that we can come back to time and time and time again when we feel like we are at our wit's end. I don't know about you, but sometimes that can be weekly, right? Sometimes that could be really the common experience of the Christian life. And so I think there's so much for us to learn here. And what I want to entitle this two-part message is this. The paradoxical nature of the gospel. The paradoxical nature of the gospel. You would think that based on uh, the passage of Scripture here with respect to human frailty, as we're going to see, that our trials would just really go from bad to worse. 
that we would just go from weakness to more weakness, from suffering to absolute despair and defeat. And what is it, therefore, that keeps us from going down that natural course of our human frailty? Well, as we looked at the passage here, Paul brings in two components to help us with this. But first, I really need to try to build the case of the nature of the Christian life, the, the nature of life as a believer, that life is one trial after another. Uh, I recently saw the, the cover of a, of a marriage book entitled, What Did You Expect? And, you know, someone needs to do a, a book on the, uh, on the nature of the Christian life and call it, What Did You Expect? Because that's the way life is as a believer, right? We, we, we think, you know, everything's going great and we're going along our life and everything seems rosy and everything is as it should be. And then all of a sudden we get blindsided by some trial and all of a sudden we have our hands in the air wondering, what just happened? What happened to my tranquility? I was doing my devotions, you know, and I was having a good time with the Lord. And all of a sudden I was completely interrupted. But one thing is for sure. In Scripture, all of Scripture testifies to this very fact that the Christian life is a life of suffering. The Apostle Paul knew this so well. As an apostle, he was called to suffer. Uh, We know what Jesus told his disciples after he had taught them for a while. He's about to send them out to do significant ministry in the kingdom of God. How does he describe their commission? He says, I am sending you out, Matthew 10, 16, like sheep in the midst of wolves. And the the imagery is so clear, right? Nobody questions, nobody wonders what happens to little poor little sheep in the midst of a pack of wolves, right? We know what happens. We have the picture in our mind's eye, maybe. You know, because Jesus was being up front that in this life they would have the things that Scripture promises, persecution, trials, distress. And it's oftentimes when trials and distress come in that people get disenchanted with the Christian faith. They think, wait a minute, it wasn't supposed to be like this. My child was not supposed to get leukemia. My, my mom was not supposed to you know, pass away because of cancer. I wasn't supposed to be filled with all of this pain in my body. You know, just this week I talked to an old friend of mine that I haven't spoke to in a long time. And it was really, really sad, heartbreaking for me to hear. But this brother has, uh, has devoted himself to the life of ministry. And so what he's done is he's, he's gone to seminary and he wants to get educated. And so he's gone to Westminster Seminary and now I believe he's at RTS getting an education, learning Greek and Hebrew and getting all the education that he needs to be a good minister. But you know what he didn't account for? Was that he was going to have a chronic back problem so that one of his discs is so damaged that he uh, has even been tempted with suicide because the back pain is so bad. And he he just wanted to serve the Lord. He just wanted to be a pastor and have a ministry and have a church and preach. And little did he know that in a few months from then, he would develop this back problem and that he would go into major bouts of depression. You know, the Christian life can be very disenchanting if we're not prepared, if we're not ready for what 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 this life holds for us. You remember Paul's calling... You would think the Apostle Paul, glorious pillar disciple, a pillar apostle in the church of God. And this is what Christ called him for. 
Acts 9, chapter, chapter 9, verse 15, he says, I'm going to show him that he's an instrument of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. See, it was the will of God that Paul would suffer. 1 Peter chapter 3 says that it is the will of God at times that we suffer if we suffer according to God's will. We suffer according to God's will. It does no good to try to pretend, no, 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 no. God just wants me to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous all the time. If anything goes wrong in my life, it's because I lack faith or I'm doing something wrong. And my wife and I, we, we, we got a phone call from some friends that we know um, and these people, you know, they were, they were suffering greatly because uh, this sister was telling us that her mom was, was dying and that she was dying of cancer. And there she was in the hospital bed. And they were of the prosperity movement type. And they were in the hospital praying for her and telling her, don't let Satan get a foothold. As she's dying of cancer in the hospital, they're telling her the reason why this is happening to you is because you lack faith. You let Satan, Satan get a foothold in your life, and you just lack the faith to believe that you could get up and walk out of this hospital. Nothing could be more demented than that type of a worldview. And the, wor- and the Scripture certainly doesn't teach that. Job did nothing wrong as it was God's will that he ordained for him a certain degree of suffering. The Apostle Paul was not in sin when he was in Rome imprisoned before Caesar Nero, the lion, the emperor, who was about to put his neck on a chopping block. No, suffering is entailed in ministry, it's entailed in the Christian life, and it happens because God has ordained that subsequent to the physical sufferings of Jesus Christ, there are church sufferings, what I call ecclesiastical sufferings, that remain for the church to fill up. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of His body, the church, filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. That doesn't mean there's something deficient in the atonement of Christ, by the way. It means that, 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 that the nature of Christ's work also entails subsequent sufferings for His people. You and I have, been, have, have, have pre-designed, predetermined, preconditioned trials fashioned just for us. And we might re- rebel against that and say, wait a minute, whoa, why does anybody want to sign up for that? The reason why is because, as Scripture says, God gave us an example of how to suffer. You're going to suffer in this life one way or another, right? You're going to suffer as an unbeliever. You could suffer for your own foolishness, Scripture says. But if you suffer according to the will of God, the strength in that is that you've been given a paradigm for suffering. You've been given an example. This is how you suffer. You follow Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter, the whole book is a book of suffering. I don't know how the prosperity people do with 1 Peter. The whole book is about how to suffer as a Christian. Peter says in chapter 2 verse 21, For you've been called to this very purpose. Talking about the Christian's suffering. He says, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example of, how to follow in his steps. Isn't that amazing? 
So we follow behind the, the blood-stained footsteps of our Lord so that we don't, so we don't get surprised when the trial comes. What did Jesus say? If anyone would come after me, he must pick up his cross and follow me. To try to get away from the cross, to try to get away from suffering, to try to live in an illusion that you don't have to suffer in this life is just that. It's a figment of our imagination. And so I say, my task, I've often said this, said this is that my task is to prepare you for suffering. I once heard my wife say, I don't know if she took it from somebody, but a good pastor prepares his people to die. That's what a pastor does. And so I want to give you two principles here, okay? Two, or actually three. We're going to look at the third one, Lord willing, next week. But here, I want to give you two principles of how to look at our suffering and how to deal with our suffering, the nature of this paradoxical gospel, okay? Number one. We can see the gospel working through human frailty. The gospel working through human frailty. Look at verse 7 again. He says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. And so the first thing to identify here is, what is this treasure? When he says, we have this treasure, what is this treasure referring to? Well, it is referring to the gospel. It is referring back to two antecedent uh, statements that he made. And it's these, verse 4 and verse 6. Verse 4, it sounds like this. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's the treasure. In verse 6, he says it this way. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I made a big deal out of that phrase last week, in the face of Jesus, meaning, meaning uh, the face of Jesus represents all that He is, His person, His work, everything that He's done for us, His redemption. That's what it represents. And so this is all code for the gospel. And that's what ultimately He's referring to. But notice the way the gospel works. Notice the way that God has ordained for the gospel to shine and to be communicated. It's through unworthy vessels. Notice his whole phrase, earthen vessels. Now, he uses the word earthen vessels to communicate two things. The fact that we are insubstantial, there's not a whole lot to us, okay? and that we are insignificant. We are altogether dispensable. God doesn't need us. Just like an earthen vessel, when you told somebody in the first century that you had an earthen vessel and you put something real valuable in it, you would say, why do you put something valuable in an earthen vessel, right? Why would you put plates of gold inside of, uh, let's say, um, a, a Walmart, uh, you know, Tupperware, you know, the real cheap kind, 99 cents, you know, you just, it's, you can't even microwave the thing, right? Why would you put a, a bag of diamonds in a, in a cheap Walmart container. You wouldn't do that, right? But that is what God did. And the reason why is because He desires to be glorified in this paradoxical way, in a way that the world would look in naturally and say, wait a minute, if this is what the gospel is, what these people have, then I don't want it. If the gospel is about 
you know, uh, with these weak and fallen and fragile and, and um, these, these Christians that have their own issues and they're imperfect and a lot of them, there's just nothing good about them. I mean, there's just nothing glorious about them. Not many of them, as Paul says, are rich or mighty or wise according to this world because the truth of the reality is, is this, is that in and of ourselves, there's just not a whole lot to commend ourselves before the world. You know, I have a dirty secret when I go to UNT. I'm sitting there talking to, you know, I'm in an academic setting, and I'm preaching about worldviews, and I'm talking about philosophy and logic and postmodernism and epistemology and all of this, and I have this dirty little secret that I don't tell any of them, that I don't have a degree. <laughs> I don't have an education. I didn't even graduate from high school. I am an earthen vessel that God in His own sovereign grace has chosen to use for His glory. And so are you. Despite all of your imperfections, despite all of your limitations, whether they be physical, whether they be spiritual, maybe you're just not as smart as the next believer. Maybe you don't know as much theology as the person next to you. Nevertheless, God has placed His treasure inside of you. It's marvelous. It's amazing. Why? Why did he do this? Look at the text. So that, and anytime you see the word so that, you know you're dealing with a purpose clause. Here's the purpose of it. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from us. You see here, Paul is just sort of piling words on top of each other. Surpassing Greatness. It would have been enough if he would have just said the surpassing power or the great power. He doesn't. He's trying to stress something here. The surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from us. What is this power that we're talking about? It is the power of the gospel, right? Just like Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the gospel is what? The power of God to those that believe. So the gospel is the power of God. It is powerful in that it convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, John 16, 8. It is powerful in that it converts the soul, Romans 10, 17. It's powerful in that it transforms our life from one degree of glory to the other, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. Right? It converts our lives, it, it transforms our lives from one degree of glory to the next so that when I see you in a few years, hopefully, and you're more sanctified than you were, and all of a sudden I bump up against you and say, wow, this person, wow, they, they've really grown. I had somebody tell me that. Hadn't seen me in a long time. Ran into me and said, brother, you've really grown. And you know what? All that is owing to the power of of the gospel, not to anybody, not to any human, not to any person, not to any pastor, not to any preacher, not to any mentor. Yes, God uses them, but ultimately the power is of them. God is using imperfect people to shape and to mold our lives, but ultimately the power source is God's. It's His own power. I love it. I love it. Anytime we talk about giving power to God, attributing power to God. We're talking about attributing glory to God. 
The power of the gospel means the glory of the gospel. The glory that comes from the gospel, it's God's. It belongs to Him. That's why Paul understood that he was nothing but a vessel. He was just a contour. He was just an instrument, just like Jesus told him. He was just a, he was just a, a pipe that God used to funnel all of his power through to the world. And that's why Paul would say in Romans chapter 15, verse 18, he says, I will not presume to speak of anything except that which Christ has accomplished through me. That's the dynamic of the Christian life. God's gospel working through human frailty. But more than that, more than that, look at verse 8 and 9. He works through human suffering also. The gospel working through human suffering. That's the second principle here. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And then a verse that we'll look a lot more at, Lord willing, next week. Verse 10. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. There's a lot there. You see why I had to split it up? But now let's look at these, um, let's, let's look at these four antithesis that he gives us here. There are four sets of phrases, participles, that he uses to kind of set things in tension in the Christian life. Listen to what he says here, because each set of these antithetical opposite things, okay, or one is an assertion, the other one is a negation. This is the amazing thing. This is what struck me like a ton of bricks when I was studying this. The fact that we are afflicted means that the natural course of our lives should result in being crushed, right? We should be crushed under our affliction. Our affliction, left to itself, should undo us, but it doesn't. So we have both the tension there that that this is what man is susceptible to, and this is what God is sustaining him through. God is protecting man from what he in his own human frailty and his own weakness is suspect or susceptible to. We are exposed to these trials, but why don't they crush us? Because God, in His power, by His power, is keeping us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. This is amazing. You know that Paul meant this very specifically here when he says afflicted in every way. That phrase there means trials are comprehensive and they're also, they're also claustrophobic. They bear down upon Can't we identify with that? Trials just kind of bear down upon you sometimes. They come from every sort of different angle. Uh, James put it this way. He says, he speaks about various Trials. Look at, look at James chapter 1 with me quickly. Uh, James chapter 1, because he talks about the same thing in a different way, and he actually uses a very specific Greek word. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, the word encounter means that you find yourself in the middle of them. The word is used of thieves that overthrow someone in a, in, 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 you know, behind a, a building or, or, or in, a, 
you know, some, some back road or something. All of a sudden, you find yourself surrounded by thieves. That's the way trials are. All of a sudden, you encounter that you're surrounded by trials. And then he says this, various trials. The word various is the Greek word that literally means many colored, many shades, right? In other words, it's just a, a way of saying there are all kinds of trials that are going to surround you. And what's the principle here is that Paul is saying, though we are bombarded, though we are smothered, though we are suffocated at times by our trials, yet we are not crushed. The word trial means things that are being pressed together, pressing something together. This is why I said you would think the natural outcome of this thing would be that you'd be crushed. When you push something together, you crush something. What is the force? What is the power? What is the energy keeping us from being crushed by our trials? I submit to you that it is only the grace of God. It is the life of Christ living in us, protecting us, keeping us. Look at the second set. He he talks about perplexity, but not despair. Perplexity, but not despair. He says, perplexed, but not despairing. The word perplexed means that you are at a complete loss, that you're confused. And then the word despair means that you are literally at the brink of being put to shame by your confusion. That you're literally at the point of embarrassment and even, according to one lexicon, at the point of doubt. Isn't it amazing that so many times trials that confuse us and perplex us can immediately issue forth in doubt? We start doubting what we believe. We start doubting our salvation. We start doubting the Word of God. We start doubting the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God. But if you are a true believer, a genuine believer, you have, the, you have the promises of God that say that He will keep you from despairing. He'll keep you from complete despair so that when, when you trust in that, this is, what I, uh, this is what it's all about here, trust. You must trust in the promises of God. Uh, for example, Philippians chapter 4 says, be anxious for nothing. We know this, this passage, I think. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 through 7. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. There is an entrusting to God the things that concern you. And then, he says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see what God did there? He took your mind-bending trials. He took your mind-bending circumstances and He overwhelmed them with His mind-bending peace. So that at the end of the day, these trials, these mind-bending trials give way to mind-bending peace through the grace of God. So that at the end of the day, nobody is amazed at the trial. What they're amazed at is your ability to cope through the trial. I see it all the time at Christian funerals. When somebody is crushed, 
When somebody is totally, well, I just told you you can't be crushed, but you know what I mean. When somebody is overwhelmed by trial, like a funeral that's just so emotional, just, 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 just really strains at the very fringes of what you can take, and there's a believer there, maybe. I think of my cousin Angelica. She's not here. But at her sister's funeral, a very sad, my, own, my cousin, uh, a very sad funeral. Oh, there must have been a thousand people there. Lots of crying, lots of tears. And I got to tell you, my cousin Angelica's example, she was sitting there just beaming with confidence in the Lord. Life, there was a, just a complete peace over her. She was comforting everyone else. And I tell you what, that glorifies God. It glorifies God. Now look at the third thing. He says, persecuted but not forsaken. You would expect for those things to go together, right? Because it's in the midst of persecution. Now we don't face a lot of persecution here. But I tell you what, this has precious meaning for our brothers and sisters in the persecuted world all around us. Like a um, brother that I was reading about last night from Laos in Vietnam, persecuted, imprisoned. He grew up in the Communist Party. He became a very powerful political figure, very wealthy, very prominent. He became a Christian, lost all his prominence, lost all of his power, all of his influence. As a matter of fact, ultimately went on to become incarcerated, thrown into prison for 15 years. For why? For telling people that he'd become a Christian. For telling people that he wanted to follow Jesus Christ. And because of that testimony, because of that, because he had that treasure hidden in his earthen vessel, he was, he was persecuted greatly. I read the whole testimony. He was tortured, beaten. He was abandoned, left in prison by himself. And I tell you what, this promise right here, Persecuted, but not abandoned. He's not left us. Go no further than the Apostle Paul himself, who often felt the sting of loneliness and abandonment in his prison cell as he's writing these letters, many of them, especially, obviously, the prison, the prison epistles. He talks a little bit about that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. He talks about what it meant to him to be forsaken. He, he, he's felt the pressure of this very thing, this very principle. This is his life. This is not just theory for the Apostle Paul. This is experience. And he says this, At my first defense, no one supported me, but everyone forsook me. Everyone deserted me, Paul says. And may it not be counted against them, but... Here's why he was not ultimately forsaken or ultimately abandoned. Verse 17 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. But the Lord stood with me and he strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished. You see, Christ strengthened him by, by manifesting his presence right there with him in that prison cell of assuring him of giving him that assurance that he is not forsaken, that he's not been abandoned, that God hasn't left him. Praise the Lord that God in all of our trials does not leave us, doesn't forsake us, 
Nothing, nothing, according to Romans 8, 35-39, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That is in Christ Jesus. The fourth thing is this. Down but not out. Or what does he say? He says, struck down but not destroyed. Struck down but not destroyed. That word struck down is a word that is used, it was common parlance in the ancient world to speak of two things. Either a Greco-Roman wrestler who had the skill to throw down his opponent or an ancient soldier who had the skill with a sword maybe to strike down his enemy. In either way, both of these imageries are found in Scripture and both of these imageries are applied to the Christian life, right? Athletics and warfare. And that's what the Christian life is. Christian life is a race. Paul says he's like a boxer that's not fighting aimlessly. He's not just, he, he's not just you know, throwing punches at nothing. He makes his punches uh, count, right? He, he, he's looking to land some serious blows in his spiritual warfare. He's not just a soldier that's, that's out there on his own. He puts on the armor of God. He takes up the sword of the Spirit so that he might be able to wage war against the fiery darts of the devil. Satan is constantly throwing stuff at you. So if you're not constantly equipping yourself, I don't know how you're going to make it. Satan knows exactly what will tempt you. Satan knows exactly what will cause you to falter and fail. Satan knows exactly what will trip you up, what will keep you from God and His Word. And so you need to have the the, the full armor of God to fortify yourself from the attacks of the devil. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he might please the one that enlisted him as a soldier. You see that? What's the saying there? The Christian life is not to be lived in cruise control. The Christian life is not to be lived haphazardly. No, brothers and sisters, the Christian life is a very sober thing. It calls for great vigilance if you want to be useful for the one that enlisted you. And if you do, you must use the greatest care. With all of these things set in mind, it's amazing that he says the grace of God keeps us from what? From being destroyed. Absolute destruction, right? Be careful, by the way, that you don't talk as if you are destroyed in the Christian life. Right? We, be careful for all the alls and, and, and all the nevers and all the alwayses in your Christian life. It's always like this. Nothing ever works out for me. Right? Everything always goes wrong. <laughs> no, that's not true of who you are in Christ. God is always protecting you, always keeping you. He is always sheltering you. He's always sustaining you. He's always empowering you to live for His glory. You know, there's actually a principle that guides all of this. Look at verse 10. We'll look at this a lot more next week, Lord willing. There's a principle that is guiding these principles along, and it's this. We are always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus 
also may be manifested in our body. You see that? The Christian life is to speak of both the death of Christ and the life of Christ, the sufferings of Christ and the victory of Christ, the vindication of Christ. That's what the Christian life is all about. And so when we're filled with sufferings, guess what? We're identifying with Christ and his humility and his lowliness. When we're walking victoriously and we're walking in in, in, in just spiritual vitality and we're walking in, in spiritual fruitfulness, we identify with Christ and His victory and all of His vindication. And I say ultimately, the beautiful thing about this passage, brothers and sisters, is this, is that what this text is ultimately saying is you are not crushed, you are not despairing, you are not forsaken, you're not destroyed. What else is going to hold you together in your trials in this life? More television? Facebook? Social media? No, video games? That ain't going to hold it together. Alcohol, substance abuse? That ain't going to cut it. Some vice that you have in your life? It ain't going to cut it. The only thing that can ever carry you through these trials is the very power of God. It's the gospel. It's the gospel working itself out in your life. But we have to trust in the promises that come to us in the gospel. Doesn't that just encourage you? encourages me. No matter how bad it gets in my life, no matter who, no matter who falls out in my life, no matter how much evil is done to me, no matter how many things go bad financially with relationships, Ultimately, I know that I have a God who will sustain me, who will protect me, who will keep me from despairing so that I don't have to doubt Him, so that I don't have to be put to shame. Praise the Lord for that. I'm so excited about next week, to be honest with you, because I want to look more about what it means to manifest the life of Christ in our lives because it all flows, brothers and sisters, from our union with Christ Because we've been united to Christ by faith, we have a life of Christ living in us, living out through us, manifesting itself through us in our world. And so I am really, really looking forward to that. Why don't we pray and uh, we will close with a song together. I'm going to have to wear a couple hats up here, so give me a second to transition from here to there. But let's pray together and uh, we will close. Well, Father... um, Lord, I do uh, thank you so much, Lord, for the fact that we are victorious not because of anything in our power, but because of your power, and to that we say amen. We're grateful, we're thankful, and God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see just how incredibly blessed we are how empowered we are by your grace, how that it's only by your grace that we have the strength to live another day, that we have, by your grace alone, strength to keep believing in the gospel. Lord, thank you. Make these truths so real to our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen.